Billy Graham was uh, once at a conference on faith and technology, and he told this story about how he was on a plane one time out on the East Coast. On the plane, he was seated across the aisle from the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina. Also on the plane was someone who had had one too many to drink. He was obviously drunk and was very annoying to the other people on the plane. This man got up out of a seat two or three times, was slapping and pinching the stewardess as she was going back and forth down the aisle, and people were really upset with this man. Finally, the mayor of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, had had a little bit too much of this annoyance. So he says to the gentleman who's seated nearby, do you know who this is? And he, he's pointing across the aisle at Billy Graham. Do you know who this is? And the man says, no, who is it? And he says, this is Billy Graham, the preacher. Like, you know, if there's a preacher in the room, everybody behaves, right? And so this is Billy Graham, the preacher. And the guy sticks out his hand to Billy Graham and he says, put her there. And then he says loud enough for everybody to hear because he's drunk. He says very loudly for everyone on the plane to hear, your sermons have really helped me. <laughs> At the conference, Billy Graham adds, and I'm sure that's true for thousands of people. And I, I thought that is so, so good and so appropriate for the series that we're in because we've been talking about putting our faith into practice because what James is saying when he says over in chapter 2, we looked at this about three weeks ago, when he says in chapter 2, can, can faith save him? Can faith alone save a person? The answer that he gives there is absolutely not. Faith without works, faith by itself isn't going to save your marriage. It's not going to preserve your future. It's not going to preserve your children. It's not going to preserve anything of value about your life. It's not going to preserve your community. If you have faith, but you don't actually work it out, if you know something or if you believe something, but you don't live as if it's true, you may as well not even believe it. That's the point that James makes largely in his book. Now, when James in, in his book talks about salvation consistently, He's talking about salvation in terms of sanctification, not justification. He's not talking about salvation in terms of when you become a believer, you simply receive the grace of God into your life. And when you receive that grace, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you'll go to heaven one day when you die and eternity comes down into here in you and and remains forever. And you're a child of God and that's never going to change. He's not talking about salvation in terms of justification. He's talking about salvation in terms of sanctification, being set apart, made holy to fit the position that by God's grace he has given you. That's what's going on in James. Now, let me explain the difference because this is important and helpful, I think. The difference between justification and sanctification because they're two sides of the same coin of salvation, but they are distinct, but they are also absolutely interrelated. I was told this story when I was a kid and it really stuck with me. I think it will stick with you. I hope it does. There's a king that's riding on the back of a, of a horse going through the forest. And this king sees this child, this little boy, down in the dirt eating mud pies. The king asks the boy, where are your parents? And the boy says, I don't have any parents. They've died. So the king, filled with compassion and perfectly rich, asks the boy, would you like to live with me in my palace? I would like to adopt you as my own son. And so the boy gets excited by, by this, but... He thinks to himself, wait a second, is there something, are there strings attached here? And so he asked the king, in order to become your son, do I have to eat vegetables because I've grown to like mud pies? 
And in order to become your son, do I have to take baths and wear fine clothes because I've become accustomed to living in squalor? And the king says, you don't have to do anything in order to become my son. All you have to do is say yes. Just simply receive my grace. Just say yes, you want to be my son, and you will be my son. We'll sign the adoption papers, and that's it. You just agree. You say yes, you just receive me as your dad. And the kid says, great. So he gets on the back of the horse. They go to the castle. They sign the adoption papers, and now the boy is the son of the king. The king is now his father. So when the lawyers leave after this ceremony is done, and he's now the son, when the lawyers leave, the dad, the king, says to his son, I want you to go upstairs and take a bath because in 30 minutes your servants are coming to dress you in these fine clothes, and then after that we're going to have broccoli casserole together for lunch. And the kid says, what? I thought you said I didn't have to do any of those things in order to become your son. And the king says, that's right. All you had to do was say yes to me. All you had to do was receive my gracious offer. All you had to do was receive my grace. That's it. You didn't have to do anything to become my son. But now that you are my son, you will act like it. I insist. And and, and rightly so, the king insists. Now, justification, that side of the coin of salvation, is when the person says yes, when the Kid signs the adoption papers when it is official. I'm receiving your grace. You're my father. I'm your son. That's, that's salvation by grace alone, not by any works so that no one can boast. That's justification, just as if I'd never sinned. But when you come into that position, if your father is worth anything, he will grow you into the position that he has graciously given you. That's sanctification. Sanctification is taking a bath and wearing clothes that are fit for the child of a king. And eating vegetables and not mud pies. These two things absolutely go together. They're not one and the same, but they are connected by the same salvation. Does that make sense? And when James is saying, can faith alone save you? Obviously not. He's talking about this. What he's saying is, you could be a believer, but but that doesn't magically mean everything's going to turn out well in your life simply because you have faith. No, no, no. If, If as a Christian, you don't brush your teeth... Your breath will stink like everyone else's. Your teeth will fall out of your mouth like they will fall out of anyone else's mouth. If you don't take what you believe and put it into practice, it's not going to actually do you any good at all. In fact, we'd have to say if the father really does adopt the son but then doesn't care if the son lives in squalor, or doesn't insist that the, that the kid do anything other than be pathetic, we would probably think either the adoption didn't take place or we've got a really pathetic father here. See, if the father adopts the son and the father loves the son, then the father is going to absolutely want for that son to be well-fed and clean and clothed in appropriate clothes of righteousness. And if the father does not press the son on that, then what we have is a father king who is not worthy of submission and he's not worthy of honor. And what the Bible teaches in so many different ways and so many different words is that you have a father and I have a father. You have a king and I have a king as as his subjects and as his children. We have a father who's absolutely insistent that we not have a faith that has nothing to do with anything. In fact, it's embarrassing to children of the king 
if they don't live like children of the king. And it's embarrassing to the king if they don't live like children of the king. It's embarrassing to have a faith that means so little that we would absolutely do nothing with it and it has nothing to do with anything. It's embarrassing. Some of you may, may have seen this kind of an embarrassing moment in the history of the church. It was rather recent. There was something floating around the Internet about this uh, debate between two churches. One was the Catholic church on one side and another was a Presbyterian church on the other side of the road. And, they, and it was a very public debate because the signs were, were very public. It was a debate over dogs going to heaven. It started like this, innocently enough. Our, our uh, Lady of Mars Catholic Church said, all dogs, do we have that? All dogs go to heaven. Can we put that up on these screens too? Is that, is that possible? All dogs go to heaven. Then the Presbyterian church responded uh, w- with this. Can we do this? Only humans go to heaven. Uh, read the Bible. <laughs> then, then the Catholic church responded, uh, God loves all his creatures, dogs included. And then, and then the Presbyterian church responded, dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. Then the Catholic Church responded, Catholic dogs have souls. Presbyterian dogs have to talk to their pastors. I thought that was, that was pretty good. And then the Presbyterian Church comes back with, with this. Converting to Catholicism doesn't magically grant your dog a soul. Then the Catholic Church responds, free dog souls with conversion. Yeah, you know, right? The Catholic Church is winning the debate, I think. Anyways, the, the Beulah Presbyterian Church comes back with, with this sign. Dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either, to which the Catholics responded, and this was the end of the debate, all rocks go to heaven. <laughs> now, okay, now that, that's actually pretty funny. That didn't actually happen either. Somebody made that up. We, that's, that's been a myth that was busted. Uh, some things are so ridiculous, even churches won't do them, and, and this is one of them. It, it didn't happen, but here's the point. Some things can pass themselves off as faith or a theological debate. It, it has nothing to do with faith at all. And what God teaches in his word is, I will make sure that as the good father, as the good king, who has given his subjects a good position, has given his children an excellent position within the family, I'll make sure as a father that I'm going to move them to a state of maturity and completion where they're not lacking anything. I am not going to stand for a faith that has nothing to do with anything. I will not tolerate that. In fact... What James teaches is God is so serious about developing a faith in you and in me. He's so serious about us having a faith that seriously makes a difference that he is willing to allow pain to be a part of our lives, sometimes an extraordinary amount of pain in our lives in order to make that happen. See, God is not a weakling pushover, and he will not allow for his subjects, and he will not allow for his children to be weakling pushovers either. That's how seriously God takes our faith. And that is why I believe James begins the book the way that he does. With that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. James writes, Consider it pure joy, pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. 
that man should not receive, should not believe he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. When James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, some people would want to dismiss that immediately if they didn't know who was writing this as ridiculous garbage because trials and joy don't really seem to go together. But we do know who's writing this, and this is James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who's very familiar with trials and difficulties in his life. And he's also writing this to people who are personally familiar with trials. He's writing this to, uh, apparently, a group of Jewish people who have become Christians. And and here's their story in in a broad way of looking at it. These are Jews who believe that God was Yahweh, the, the Almighty, the I Am. But then they came as Christians to understand that this almighty God, this unapproachably holy, holy, holy God could be seen as their father, not just any father, but their Abba father. They could have an intimate relationship with this father in the family with God. And that Jesus was the long awaited Messiah, the promised one that he, the Messiah has actually come. And this Messiah has done more than just rule from a distance as a politician. He's brought them into the family so that Jesus, the, the big brother, the firstborn among many, would be not just their, their Lord, but their Savior and their friend. And this was news beyond compare if you were a Jew. And then uh, the Jews come to understand who become Christians that they're not welcome in the synagogues anymore. And they begin to get persecuted by their Jewish brothers and sisters. And then the families are divided and they get scattered and things become disastrously difficult because of their faith in Jesus. And so they start asking questions like we ask questions whenever the roof caves in and the floor falls out from beneath our feet. They start wondering, okay, God, where are you? Because I thought you were a good God and you don't feel like a good God. I mean, I keep praying and praying and I'm not hearing anything or not hearing what I think that ought to be hearing. And are you even there? Because it seems like you're ignoring me. And all of a sudden you've got these people who are excited about Jesus who are wondering, is something wrong with me? Or is something wrong with God because I'm suffering? And James explains to them, no, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with God. Here's what you need to do. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now, he could be talking about trials only because of persecution, but I I think this extends beyond that. When you face trials of any kind, many kinds, all kinds of trials. When there's difficulty that comes in your life, thank God for it. Consider it pure joy. Why? Then he gives an explanation, and in the explanation, he defines for us what a trial is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There it is. That's what a trial is. A trial is the testing of your faith. And you know, and I know, that whenever the roof caves in, the floor falls out from beneath your feet, whenever you get that letter from the IRS or that particular phone call, whenever things don't go very well, all of a sudden, there is a faith crisis. Your your faith gets stretched. And there is this crisis that comes when you are wondering, is God who he said he is, or is he consistent with what he said about himself And all of a sudden, when there's the difficulty, there's a moment of stretching of your faith, and it becomes very uncomfortable. But when you're living a wrinkle-free life, like I try to live a wrinkle-free life, where everything is in its place, everything is in order, everyone around me 
you know, is happy, healthy, and whole, whenever you've got that wrinkle-free moment in this wrinkle-free life that you're trying to maintain, you know, that doesn't do much for your faith. It doesn't do much for mine. I enjoy those times. I like those times. I treasure those times. But it doesn't do much for my faith. But when the wife gets sick or the dog gets put down or the pipes burst, all of a sudden, uh, God's got my attention. But when things are going well, I wake up late because I, it's Saturday and I've got a tea time at 9.30 and the sun is shining and the bluebirds are singing and the weather is perfect and I've got my cup of coffee and it's made just right. I'm not saying, oh, God, help me right now to maintain my faith and belief in you. It's not happening that way. I enjoy those times. But when the pipes burst, you get the phone call. Or you have to watch that live event on TV because your spouse has the remote control and you don't have any other choice. And you have to watch that live event where those two guys were doing, what was that called, debating? Uh, all of a sudden, you've got questions. All of a sudden, your faith is tested. And this conversation begins to happen with God. God, are you there? Do you care? I need to know that this didn't catch you off guard and and that you actually have a plan in the middle of this. And all of a sudden, your faith gets tested to the point of exhaustion because God is like that high school coach that you had that maybe you only loved after the winning season was over, but before the season started, you weren't necessarily so excited about it. And in the middle of all this, what James is communicating is just because things have gotten difficult doesn't mean God is absent. In fact, adversity is no signal at all that God is not involved in your life. In fact, the adversity in your life, the difficulties that you're facing, they're actually very strong signals that God is present and actively moving your relationship with God forward because in those difficulties, what God is doing is he is kicking out from beneath you all the things that you're standing on that you shouldn't have been standing on in the first place as your foundation. He's kicking out from beneath you anything other than God and his character and his person alone as the appropriate place in your life upon which to stand. God is actually active in your life, destroying things that need to be destroyed. To which we should all go, pure joy, right? Now... That's not how most of us necessarily respond, but James says the good news in all of this is God is up to something. He's active. He wants to accomplish something. He wants to press the relationship forward, and he's doing it. And some of us say, well, I wish that God wouldn't respond that way or have to do that. Well, if you're one of these people that says, when difficulties come, I just wish God didn't have to do that, I want to let you know three things. First of all, I'm in your corner. I wish God didn't have to do that either, but as it turns out, at least with me, he has had to. Some of the greatest moments of growth in my life have come because God could not have grown me in a season of wrinkle-freeness, but he had to completely, utterly mess up my life for a season in order to remake it in the way that he wanted to. That may resonate with some of you. So I'm sorry if you don't like it. I don't like it either, but God has had to do that with me. Second thing I want you to know is God basically is concerned about your happiness, but your immediate happiness is not as important to God as your holiness. We have valued things inappropriately. 
And if God needs to introduce pain in order to make you a more holy person, he certainly should do that because he values that more highly than your particular personal satisfaction at any given moment. The third thing that I would say to you if you have a difficult time being joyful in the midst of your pain and suffering is, well, God obviously thinks it's worth it. And here's one of the reasons that he thinks it's worth it. Uh, Let me put it to you like this. In a relationship, whether you're married, as a boyfriend, girlfriend, it doesn't matter. If you're in a, in, a, in a relationship that's important to you, brother, sister, friend, you want that person who's important to you to love you for who you are and not necessarily for what you're doing for them in any given moment. And you know as, it, that love shines the brightest in some of the darkest moments and that love is forged strongest in difficult circumstances. And what you want from your husband or your wife or that special someone, what you want more than anything else is for them to say, I love you, even when you haven't given them a particular reason to do that lately. Or you want them to say, I trust you, even when maybe the evidence doesn't support that. You just want them to love you because they love you because they love you and just to trust you because you're you. Well, if that's what you want, guess what? God wants that too. He does not want to be our cosmic butler. The way the Bible says that he loves you is, is he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. That's unconditional love. I chose you is how God puts it, especially in the Old Testament. You see this a lot, but he chooses us not because we're choice. He just chooses us because he chooses us because he chooses us. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us. And he wants that from us as well. And what happens when your faith is tested, when the difficulties come and that faith is getting stretched, it's giving you an opportunity and me an opportunity to have our faith and faithfulness hung entirely on who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and not on what he's done for us lately or what he's doing for us or how we can figure out why he's doing what he's doing in this particular moment. In those difficult times, what God is actually doing is he's pressing the relationship with us forward. He has not gone missing. He is terribly present. And just because you can't see it in that moment and just because I can't see it in that moment doesn't mean that God is missing. No, he's producing faith and faithfulness. The mountaintop moments, which we all love and we appreciate and we want consistently, those give us great views and inspiration and we enjoy all that. But in the Bible and in your life, like in my life, the fruit of faith and faithfulness always gets produced down in the valleys. And so the question that you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself from time to time is, am I willing to allow God to transform me into an authentic Christian? Not, not just a, a Sunday morning only, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven kind of Christian, but the kind of person who has been remade into the image of Christ who can accurately reflect the character and the person and the nature of God? Do I want God to do a work in my life so that I can bring him more joy and more happiness and more glory and more praise? Do I want that? And the good news is if you want that, God wants that too. The good news is, James says, if that's what you want, God is absolutely on board, but here's what you have to do. When the bottom falls out, when the roof caves in, when you get that letter or that phone call, you need to ask for wisdom. He puts it like this. Put the next verse up there. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. You go through difficulties, ask for wisdom. You ask for wisdom, and God will grant it. Now, here's the, the, the thing. If I'm like you, which I think I am in many respects, you probably understand what we want in times of difficulty, when things fall apart, when the storms come, what we want is relief. We don't want wisdom. We want relief from the test. We don't, we, we don't, we want out of the test. We don't necessarily want wisdom for the test. And what James says is, no, Ernest, here's how you need to pray. You need to go to God and you need to ask for wisdom. Say, God, in this moment when this diagnosis came or my, my dog got put down or I lost my job, whatever the case is, God, that I want to take as evidence that you've fallen off your throne, that you don't care, that you've gone missing. And God, I just want you to help me to see reality for what it is and then to live in accordance with reality as it is. That's what wisdom is. And the Bible tells us, James tells us, the good news is if you pray that prayer, God will answer it every time. The thing that you think is going to crush you and undo you will actually mature you and make you complete if you will ask for wisdom. But you have to ask for it in a certain way. Because God doesn't magically grant the wisdom. Part of the wisdom comes in the way in which you ask for the wisdom. Because if you ask inappropriately, you'll never get it. Because even if God shared the wisdom, you wouldn't be in a position to receive it if he gave it to you. So he says, when you ask, here's how you ask. You ask with belief, not with doubt. Because belief is the whole point. If you put it up the next verse. Do we have it? But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not believe that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, what James is talking about, I think, are, are the people who would do this. You know, sometimes God is really good when life is going well, and then when life isn't going well, is there even a God at all? And they are like back and forth and back and forth, and you just you get motion sickness just watching them shift all over the place almost from day to day or from morning to evening. They're so circumstance locked. They're like the wind that changes directions. They're like the waves that blow all over the place. They're like the tides that rise and fall and rise and fall. And James says, God doesn't want you that way because he doesn't want you again resting in circumstances. He wants you resting in the person and the nature and the character of God. And so if you're going to be the person who grows in wisdom, you can't come to God doubting and shifting all over the place because if he gives you the answer, you're going to be missing it because you're shifting everywhere. And if you're asking for wisdom and you really mean it that you're asking for wisdom, you are acknowledging you don't have the wisdom. You know why you don't have the wisdom? Because you acknowledge that you don't have the perspective. Oh, God, I don't know why this is happening, but here's what I know about you, God. I know that you're God and I'm not, that you're great, big, and eternal, and I'm itty-bitty and I'm 52 or 42 or 32 or 62 or whatever it is. It's in that position of humility where you're brought to this moment, this crossroads moment in your life where you have to choose, am I going to pretend that I'm God and can figure things out and that my perspective matters than him or am I going to completely erase all of that illusion and say, God, I need your wisdom because I don't know, I'm not God, I'm sure you're up to something here. If you ask with faith, with belief and not doubt that God is above you and that you can't judge God because if you judge God, you're judging God by standards that he gave you. And how can you judge God on the basis of standards that you trust that came from him? And you just say, I'm just tired with all that nonsense. I don't know. Give me your wisdom. God's going to give you wisdom every time and you will grow into a person of maturity and, and you will be made complete, not lacking anything. If you will just look at adversity through a different lens and pray for wisdom. Now, some of you are going, okay, 
Ernest, I appreciate that. Thank you for the, the exposition of that little passage. I've heard this before. Thank you for reminding me of all this. But what does this have to do with living out my faith practically? I thought we were in a series about taking your faith and putting it to work and, and living out what you believe in a practical manner. Why are we spending any time philosophizing, theologizing about suffering and pain? Okay, thank you for that question. I appreciate you asking that question, Roy, very much. Uh, I'm going to answer your question with a question of my own. Why do you think James begins this very practical book with all of this talk about pain and suffering and Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, all kinds of trials. Why does he start this practical book out that way? Why does he start that? And then the next thing he says, you know, you can overcome temptation and you need to. And and you need to look in the mirror, but don't just forget what you look like. Don't just be a hearer of the word, a doer. And don't just do for yourself. He goes on, do for other people and do for other people regardless of their social status and take your faith seriously, even to the point of guarding your mouth. And then he spends a whole chapter about submitting to God and practical repentance. And this is obviously a book about living out your faith. Why does he start the whole thing out talking about consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds? I want to suggest at least one reason why he starts this book out this way. And I'm going to read it just like it's up there on the screen. God is so serious about you living out your faith with stability and consistency that he is willing to allow pain into your life in order to make it happen. This is a big deal. If as a parent you are so concerned about growing up your your child or if as a king you're so serious about growing up your subjects to the point where their faith matters more than anything else, I'm going to introduce pain. That's a, that's a really big deal. That's a big deal as a parent to intentionally put your children in harm's way because you know it's worth it. Um, you know, concussions are, are serious matters. Gina has a concussion now. I appreciate y'all praying for her. It, the recovery's coming. It's slow, but keep praying. We appreciate that. This is not her first uh, concussion. She's had a couple of others. She was rear-ended a couple of times. One time she was rear-ended by somebody that was going about 60 miles an hour. It was bad. Okay. It was really bad. So we know all about concussions. But in spite of the fact that we know all about concussions and, and surgeries, because Gina's had, you know, knee surgery and shoulder surgery. She, you know, Gina's had a lot of things. And uh, we know all about this. We still had Nathan and encouraged Nathan to play full contact football since the time he was a little kid. And, and he was a late bloomer. We knew he was going to get hurt. We knew he was going to get injured. Uh, we knew uh, that he was a little bit undersized. He, now he's, you know, taller than me, bigger than me. But, you know, at that point, it's like, no, uh, he, he's rather small. And he's playing the position of quarterback, which basically means you're a tackling dummy. You get creamed a lot. What we didn't know is that around Georgetown, people will intentionally hold their boys back a year so that they're bigger than everybody else. So Nathan was well, a year behind, and then the others are a year ahead. So he's like two years behind. And so he, here you see pictures. He's here, and then his friends are up here or whatever, and he's playing football, and, and we know he's going to get injured. And, yeah, he, he had shoulder problems. He, he got tackled a lot. He had concussions. Did we enjoy seeing Nathan in the seventh grade lying on the ground unconscious because some kid twice as big blindsided him? Did we enjoy all of that? No. 
In fact, I can remember having people kind of question us. Are you sure you want to have your kid playing football? And, and, and the, I knew you're going to get concussions and, and injured doing all kinds of things. There are more concussions in women's soccer per player than in football. So I would just tell people, he's not playing football, he's playing girl soccer. Don't worry about it. No, actually, I didn't really do that. And then I was getting judged for a whole other kind of problem. But anyways, um, we had him playing football. And he got hurt. And we knew he would, and he did. And Nathan was very glad that he played. Because pain's a good teacher. And it's not just the pain of getting hit. It's the pain of disappointment. The pain of... Sometimes poor calls, sometimes the pain of poor refing, sometimes the pain of hitting the receiver right in the hands in the end zone and them dropping it, and sometimes the pain of your linemen or running backs missing their assignments or not taking their blocking assignments seriously, or the pain of, of all pain of loss, the pain of putting the team's needs ahead of your own. There's a lot of pain, and he grew from it, and he was happy about it. Now, some of you would say, well, I don't know. I still don't know if I want to do that or I wouldn't want to see my grandkids do that or I was really glad when Nathan stopped playing football, you know, to be honest with you. But, but you say, but doesn't that seem a little inconsistent? We have a father king who wants his children well-fed and clean and clothed, and yet the Bible also teaches that he is willing to allow his children and subjects to experience incredible pain and disappointment and loss. Is that consistent? I would say yes, but if you struggle with it and you say, well, there's a tension there, you're right. John R.W. Stott put it like this one time. He said, balanced Christianity is a rare phenomenon. It seems to be a characteristic of our fallen minds that we find it easier to grasp half-truths than to, than to grasp the whole truth. And in consequence, we become lopsided Christians. Nothing, though, heals lopsidedness quite as strongly as pain and the faith crisis that generally follows the pain and the hurt and the disappointment. Because when there's the faith crisis that follows the disappointment, here's what happens. You get laser focused. You go all in or you back off, but there's no fence sitting. Or put a little bit differently, in that moment when you wonder, oh God, what are you doing or why are you not intervening or what is happening or what is your plan, in that moment you have a choice between one mind and another mind. The mind that says, I know how things need to go and I know how my life is supposed to turn out and I know how everything is supposed to play out and God, you're not on my plan. And then there's the other mind that says, I'm just itty bitty and I'm 52. And God, I can't judge you. Your ways are better than my ways. In fact, I'm so convinced of that that I'm still going to hang on to faith and I'm still going to trust you even though I cannot see why you're doing what you're doing, or even though it doesn't seem like you've done anything for me lately, I just know who you are, and I love you, and I trust you. In those moments of difficulty, you have to choose this or you choose this because you can't have it both ways at the same time in those moments of darkness. It does not work that way. And what God needs to happen in you and what God needs to happen in me, and he's still working on me, is he wants me all one mind, the other gone. 
You might remember a couple of weeks ago, we ta- or I think it was just last Sunday, we talked about James chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, be, you know, be pure-hearted, you double-minded. You double-minded people. He's saying, you're all double-minded. I'm double-minded, you're double-minded. It's like you got two, you're a schizophrenic spiritual personality, and, and that makes you twice as hard to deal with. But here's what needs to happen. You need to go with the one mind that is right. And in those moments of testing, you have to choose a side. You have to, to, dig, to dig in and go to one side or the other. And that's why it's so important when you pray for wisdom in the, in the midst of your difficulty that you can't be double-minded. You have to pray with belief because the whole problem is your double-mindedness. And in that moment, if God in the pain presses you all the more into the one mind and the purity of heart, then God is doing what needs to happen because he's bringing you to a place of maturity and completion where you're not lacking anything because what you have been lacking is the disregard for the other mind. Or let me put it to you like this. Let's look at Jesus. Jesus is rather single-minded. He loves the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loves loves his neighbor as himself. That's why Jesus does what he does. He is absolutely laser-focused on... He has one mind. He never varies from that path. Even when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, not my will but thine be done, and he's sweating the great drops of blood, what what does he have in mind? He's loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he's also loving you as himself because you're the prize that he's after in his single-minded purity of focus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. You were the prize. You were the trophy that he was after, or the crown, the Stephanos, that would be put upon his head as the victory was won because you were the prize. Now, I bring that up because you go back to James and check this out. In James chapter 1, verse 12, a little bit later, we don't have this up on the screen, James puts it like this. He says, blessed is the one who endures trials. Why? Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, the Stephanos, not the diadem, the crown of ruling, but the crown of victory, the trophy. He will have received that trophy of life that God has promised to those who love him. Here's the idea. When through the trials you get to the point where you love God because you love God because you love God, not because of what he's done for you lately, not because of what he's doing for you, but because of simply who he is and because of what he's done for you already in Christ Jesus. When you love him the way he loves you, when you love him because you love him because he loved him the way that he first loved you, he loved you because he loved you because he loved you, then you get the victory. Then you get the crown of life because the crown of life, the very thing that completes you and makes you mature, not lacking anything, is God. When you begin to see God as the crown of life, when you begin to love him as he loves you, then you've arrived Because there is no conflict between God's desire to be glorified and our uh, desire to be satisfied. Because when you get to the point where your greatest satisfaction is to glorify God and His mind and your mind are made one, you have arrived and you are complete and the victory is yours because what you've been needing all along that God has wanted to bring you to a point of, what you've been needing and now that you have is a love for God because you love Him, because you love Him, because you love Him, because He's simply God and you're not. God is actively involved in your adversity, pressing the relationship forward in a way that He never could where they're not adversity. 
And he does this because he is so serious about developing a faith that seriously makes a difference in this world because what he wants for you is what he wants for other people. That's why we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why God presses us forward and presses us forward and presses us forward because we need to have the kind of faith that actually makes a difference in this world because what the rest of the world needs is what God desires and what the rest of the world needs is what you need and that is for us to get to a point where He and He alone is the foundation of our lives and our greatest desire. God is so serious about our faith being seriously driven in that we would seriously live it out that He is perfectly willing to allow pain into our lives. And I guess for one person I would say, I'm glad that God is willing to go that far. Because when when it comes right down to it, what I need more than a tea time at 9.30 or a good night's sleep or a great cup of coffee is the love of God experienced in my life. So consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you will be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, you are good, and uh, your, your goodness is above and beyond our judgment. It's not that suffering isn't hard. I mean, it's suffering. It hurts. There's disappointment, and we know that we do live in the world that you created, but the state of things is not as you originally created it. We live in a fallen world and there is sickness and there is disappointment and there is sin, there's devastation, there's death. And and you are looking forward to that day when all things will be restored. So you are not the author of destruction, but you do have a plan in everything. And I just pray that when the disappointments come and the hurt comes and the pain comes, that we will embrace what it is that you're trying to do through the disappointment. And that is to draw us closer to you, that you would be revealed because you are the prize. I don't know what else to ask, God. I just want to say thank you for the way you operate. Help us to cooperate with what you do that the world would know in a practical way the difference that Jesus makes. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.